This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Ruben Isgalov. Ruben is a professional lender. He has made over $500 million of loans on real estate to flippers and other real estate investors. Today, we're digging into a recent phenomenon in the real estate space that came about as a result of rising interest rates. Specifically, we're talking about rescue capital. We dig into his lending company's rescue capital program, how they make loans, how they evaluate deals and borrowers, and so much more. I've been really digging around for folks that are in the rescue capital space, and honestly, they're kind of hard to find. There was a lot of conversation amongst commercial real estate investors earlier this year about rescue capital, folks thinking that there was going to be a lot of opportunity for rescue capital investors. But for the most part, that hasn't really materialized, in my opinion. But there are guys like Ruben out there doing rescue capital loans. And today, that's what we're digging into, how his business works with rescue capital borrowers, how they find and evaluate deals and a lot more information around that. Really excited to bring this knowledge to you today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Once again, our guest today is Ruben Isglov. Let's go. Ruben, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to have a conversation about the state of the lending market, and we'll get into rescue capital as well, what you're doing today with that. But before we do, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what you do in the real estate space? Sure, Taylor. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely was looking forward to this. So I'm happy to be here. Um, about myself, we, I think we spoke about this right before uh, the recording, but yeah, we immigrated to the U.S. Uh, when I was just six years old back in the 90s. Um, I kind of entered real estate coincidentally at 13 or 14 years old. Uh, one of my cousins was door knocking in the Queens area of New York, um, and he had this brilliant idea of inviting me to go door knocking alongside him uh, because a 13-year-old boy can probably get more doors open than a, a 30-year-old at that time, um, which was a brilliant idea on his end. Uh, it definitely worked. Uh, we, we got a lot more doors open. I, I definitely was able to see him kind of make the deals happen, gave me a taste of real estate. Um, and around 18 years old, um, I decided that, you know, school is not for me. I'm going to go straight into business. Um, did that for a little bit and then realized that school is the way to go. Uh, ended up going back to uh, getting my GED, ended up going to uh, getting my undergrad, and then ultimately going to law school, graduating top of my class, passing the bar, only to realize that I'm not an attorney. Um, I'm more of a, a businessman and a real estate entrepreneur. Um, and that's kind of the direction that I went even while in law school and, and undergrad. I was buying, selling, flipping, developing real estate for, for quite some time here in the New York area. And then one time we decided to find a cheaper source of liquidity for the loans that we were taking on, on our acquisitions. So we went to this private lender conference in Arizona at that time. It was called the Pitbull Conference. Now it's the NPLA, uh, National Private Lenders Association, which is an amazing association for private lenders to be a part of. 
we went there. I heard a dear friend of mine speak. Well, now he's a dear friend, uh, John Hornick, about the private lending industry. And uh, we, we literally put pen to paper, my, my family and I, and realized that we can hit very similar to returns, uh, to the returns that we're able to hit on the equity side of ac- acquiring properties um, on the lending side. So uh, that was in 2018. Uh, since then, we funded about $500 million in loans, seen about 4,000 loan applications, funded about 1,000. Uh, so, you know, obviously we have high credit standards, um, but we are private lenders. We lend to real estate operators, uh, mostly fix and flippers who are buying distressed real estate, um, buying them at a discount, repositioning them, and then ultimately flipping them or holding them in their, in their own portfolio. There's been a conversation this year, especially as rates have crept higher and higher about rescue capital, folks coming in and providing liquidity to real estate investors and deals to get them out of a tough position, if you will. And I've honestly been looking for people who are in the rescue capital business. And what do you know? Today, we have you with us. Uh, You are in the rescue capital business. So that's a conversation that I want to have and learn more about what you're doing, why folks would need rescue capital. So first off, can you tell us about the specifics of your rescue capital, like lending plan, what you're doing with investors who need rescue capital, what that looks like? Absolutely. I mean, most of what we do today is fix and flip lending, right? Lending to the real estate uh, uh, investors that are buying properties, like I said, off, uh, at discount, at the foreclosure auctions, off market, what have you. But we've also seen recently a little bit of an uptick in demand or you can say inquiries about rescue capital. These are borrowers that are either in a technical default or a payment default with their existing lender. Could also be a partner dispute. It could be a divorce, a partner divorce, right? It could be a a, a marital divorce. I mean, it could be a number of things where they need someone to come in and take out their existing lender. They may have taken on too much debt. They may have taken on a floating rate at the time. Now the rates went from say 4% all the way up to 9%. Um, there could be a number of reasons why they need someone, a new lender to come in and kind of reposition and restructure their debt. So what we do is we come in and we help them take out their existing lender so that they don't have to take on that 24% default rate or sometimes even greater depending on what state you're in. Uh, and instead putting them into a rate a little bit more competitive than that 24%. Uh, the, the only real hedge against the risk that we have take out a loan uh, that's already in, in, you could say, default of some sort, whether it's a technical default or a payment default, is the leverage against the properties as is value, right? On the fix and flip side, we're looking at the properties as their repair value, the future value. But here, the deal is coming in with baggage, right? Like I said, you're running into a fire, a house with fire. What equipment do you have to try to mitigate that fire or try to essentially save yourself? So if we as lenders, the only way that we can mitigate the risk running into a fire is the leverage on the properties as is value. So regardless of what the properties can be worth after the repairs, after the repositioning, we're only going based off the properties as is value. And there we're giving them 65% of the properties worth today as is where is. Uh, we're able to fund those deals as quick as I would say two to four business days. Um, they usually take a little longer depending on you know how fast the borrower can get us documents how fast they react and so on. But we usually fund those seals within a week's time. You mentioned a couple of different types of defaults that you're seeing. And specifically, could you define for us technical default and, and what you're seeing in that way? Like, what is a technical default? 
And just what does that look like when somebody comes to you who's in that position? Yeah. So most technical defaults are actually maturity defaults, right? It's, it's a borrower that, you know, had a say five-year loan with their existing agency lender or a 12 month loan with their bridge lender. Right. And that now has matured, right? They have, they've come to an end of that loan. It could be their 13th month. It could be their 11th month and they're just preparing for that 12th month, or it could be that they're on there four years and say, what, nine months, 10 months, 11 months. They already know that they're at a position where they need to take out their existing lender, but for whatever reason, they can't go to another agency lender or they can't go to another lender that can bridge that gap for them, or they just don't want to take on more equity from other investors. Right. So what we will do is we will essentially take them out. And that's what essentially is a technical default is some type of maturity. It could also be the fact that their debt service coverage ratios were breached, right? There's a lot of lenders that monitor your loans on an annual basis. Possible that now with the new rates and the, the, the new rates going up, but your rents kind of staying stable, you, you've breached your debt service coverage ratios. So as a result, that could be a technical default. So. That, that kind of defines what a technical default is. And that's kind of where we come in. Obviously, if a borrower, you know, isn't a technical default, we want to understand why, uh, what happened, especially if they're in a payment default. If they're in a payment default, then it could be, Hey, it's a partner dispute. My partner was required to make the mortgage payments or whatever that situation is. We're okay with that. So long as you're now buying out the partner. But if you're going to tell me in a payment default type of scenario that I just don't like paying my mortgage and I don't like lenders, I'm not giving you a loan, right? Go on to another one, right? I mean, that doesn't happen, but we, we always want to understand the scenario, right? What, what happened? What caused you to fall into a default? What are your remedies? What are your, what are your plans? And how are you looking to get yourself out of the situation? Because regardless of what loan we make, whether it's a rescue loan or a fix and flip loan, these loans are for a period of 12 months. So within 12 months, you got to take us out. What's your plan doing that? So we take a deep dive on the borrower. We take a deep dive on the asset. But the borrower is also very important to us. So we always want to make sure that they're institutional grade, that they have the experience to navigate the markets that we're in today, especially with, with some of the uncertainty that's happening today. So for us, the asset is important, but so is the borrower. Great. So I think a lot of the conversation about rescue capital has centered around preferred equity or some mezzanine debt, some position that is something other than the first lien position, the, the primary lender on the deal. In your opinion, is it, is it workable to do a rescue capital deal as a pref equity partner, or does it kind of only work if you pay out the original lender and then become the first lien position? So for us specifically, I mean, we prefer the latter, right? To pay off the existing lender and then obviously be the first lien position. And the reason to that is because of the certainty and, and the position of the capital stack, right? Now we are in a much safer part of the stack because as a lender, you're the last one in, but you're the first one out, right? Before any equity partner, whether they're preferred equity or not, um, they, before they get paid out, the lender has to be paid off first. So for us, the key is always to be a, a first lien position lender versus a preferred equity kind of capital infusion. Um, although we have been kind of dancing around that idea as well, we have seen in the past couple of months specifically a higher demand and request and inquiry into kind of capital, uh, rescue capital demand. So we are thinking about potentially putting something together, some kind of vehicle together for that specific purpose as far as putting in capital equity infusions, but it's not something that we've really done just yet. 
for us, we're lenders. We like that position. We, we just feel like it's just a lot more safer to be in that position. It seems to me that it would be a lot more difficult to make a rescue capital deal work as a PREF equity partner because in a lot of those positions, the existing equity may be severely diminished or already wiped out. Non-existent. So, yeah. Non-existent. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it hard to see how that would work or you might have to pick through a large pile to find a couple that that might work. I don't know what your opinion is about that, but it sounds like we're- No, I totally agree point. with you. I mean, look, I think a lot of the, the rescue capital demands are coming from, you could say syndicators, investors, developers that really bought properties at, they, you know, at a really high moment in the real estate industry, right? And at its peak, um, obviously their rates, some of them bought into a floating rate. Um, and if you really kind of reassess and reappraise the values, their property that they bought for 20 million at that time was worth 25, now maybe worth 15 million. Um, and that really is all of their equity or, or, or something similar to that at that moment in the deal. So it would be very difficult to take out or add any more equity into the deal because Guess what? Now you're lopsided, right? You're, you're, you're negative equity. So how do you structure that? It's, it's, it's really difficult. I think the only way to really try to do that is by going to the existing lender and doing some type of modification, doing some kind of loan forgiveness. But a lot of lenders, I mean, they would much rather just take over the asset. And that's, that's, that's really the position that many of them are, are in today, especially if you look at the office market. You know, I'm sure you're seeing all the headlines of, of, of in, investors turning the keys back. I mean, PIMCO, I think, I think I remembered them returning about $6 billion in offices back to their lender. I mean, that's, that's a huge, and that's PIMCO for God's sakes, right? So like, you know, it, when you see, you know, large institutions like that giving back their assets, you better believe that they tried to negotiate something with their lender before they did that. They tried to negotiate some kind of loan forgiveness, some kind of restructuring, some kind of modification, and they clearly weren't able to do that because there's just not enough margin or meat in the bone. For the lender to be able to do that, so that's that's kind of our take, and that's why you know our focus right now is providing only debt versus equity infusions at this moment. How do you think about foreclosures in this process? You make a, a loan on a property, and things don't go well. The borrower defaults to you. How do you think about foreclosures? Are they kind of a last ditch effort thing to recover your investment and? You know, what's your process there? Let's talk foreclosure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a very good question. Um, what we've learned is that the more equity the borrower has in the deal from the time that we, they acquired the property, um, the more likely they are to actually pay off the loan. Whether they're in the payment default or a technical default, if a foreclosure is initiated and they've had at least, say, 25 to 30% of equity in the deal, it's very likely that they will find some kind of medium or some kind of outlet to pay off our loan. Now, what we've also learned is that if we made a loan at a high leverage, right? So let's just say they only had 10% down. Uh, we do have a program for fix and flippers, experienced operators, where we'll give them 98% of the purchase price and 100% of the construction. Uh, but we've learned that those borrowers that are at that 90%, they're more likely just to let go of the property because their, their equity in the deal is minimal. They don't mind just walking away. Whereas the people that the investors and the borrowers that actually have a lot of equity in the deal, they are more likely to kind of try to figure something out on their end. Maybe go out to another rescue capital type of lender. Maybe we'll provide them that rescue capital through another vehicle. Uh, they're more likely to try to hold on to that deal. 
How do you think about vetting the borrowers, their experience, their portfolios, and everything like that? Like, what's your process for evaluating the the person, people, or the companies that you're lending? Yeah, and that's that's a great question. I mean, look, sixty three percent of our borrowers today are returning repeat borrowers. Uh, these are borrowers that have already taken a number of loans from us um, over and over, and we love that, right? Because that just makes the system and the processes just so much easier and 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 easier to work with, essentially. Uh, but also 89% of our borrowers are institutional grade borrowers, experienced operators with great FICO scores. So um, I would say the average FICO score right now for us is right around 693. And most of our borrowers that are buying properties with us today, they already have experience with similar to, similar to what we're financing for them today. Um, what we do is we take a deep dive. We not only look at the borrower's experience in terms of what have they done in the past, we look at their obviously the deals. We want to know the addresses. We want to know exactly when they bought it, how much they bought it for. And we look at the public records to make sure that that is in fact the case, right? They were in fact tied to those deals. And a lot of times they could have been a silent partner or a partner that was not the signatory. So what we'll ask is for an operating agreement to tie them to that deal, right? Um, and then in addition to that, we, we do a full credit search. We want to make sure the borrower has good credit, good standing. We do a background search. We want to make sure that he hasn't had any past foreclosures or bankruptcies or anything to that effect. And the main reason why we do all that is, of course, for our own security. And it's also for our counterparties that we ultimately sometimes trade our loans with. But it's also for the borrower's own security. Because we look at the loans and say, okay, we understand you're buying this property. You're buying it at a foreclosure auction. You're buying it off market. Your plan is to reposition and flip it. But what happens if you cannot flip it or you don't want to flip it and you want to take out that loan, our loan, with another lender? We look at it from a perspective of the future lender lens, right? Can this borrower qualify for the takeout loan at a later point? And that's why we do a background search. That's why we look at their experience. That's why we look at their credit to make sure that they could take out that loan with a future lender from a lender, future lender's lens, you can say. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now on the topic of rates, rates have been increasing for the last year and a half plus or so, and who knows where they're going to go in mm. 2024 really, but nevertheless, they're up. Have you seen, or have you been able to raise rates on your loans? And how have you thought about that? Especially as banks have raised the rates, the treasury bills up, all, all that. And what have you done yeah. with rates? So I'll tell you, I mean, our rates in... But two years ago on a fix and flip bridge side was right around 7.99, which was great back That's then. And, and even then our borrowers were negotiating and trying to bring wow. us down. Today on the bridge side, um, on, on the fix and flip side, our rates are only between 11 and 12%. Um, there was a, a good you know, couple of months where borrowers just were not willing to accept the fact that the rates are where they are. Nowadays, borrowers are completely accepting of the fact that that's where the rates are. Where are the rates going to go? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're anticipating as lenders, we have to anticipate that the, the rates are going to go up, right? And the only reason why is because when we make a loan, especially on the fix and flip side, we make loans that are fixed and they're fixed for a period of 12 months, which is great. It's not that much of a exposure. It's only a 12 month exposure versus a five year or 10 year exposure. Uh, but still, we have to anticipate that the rates are going to go up because in the event that the rate does go up during that 12-month period while we made the loan, well, guess what? My cost of capital has gone up, right? We do raise capital from ultra-high net worth and high net worth individuals. 
but we also have warehouse facilities, right? So essentially we want to make sure that when we make a loan, our warehouse facility, if the rate goes up on that, we can still offset whatever incomes we have coming in on the existing rate from the existing borrowers. So we have to anticipate that because while our borrowers rates are fixed, our rates on the warehouse facilities are not. And that's the kind of exposure that we have to mitigate uh, the risk from. Okay. That makes sense. You mentioned a bit earlier that sometimes you sell the loans to other investors and with a 12 month loan, you know, and, and rates changing and everything that changes the, the, basically the face value of the loan itself, the remaining balance and all that. So tell us about that process of actually selling a loan that only has a 12 month length and then this fluctuating rate environment. How do you think about that and approach that sale of the loan? It's, it's amazing, right? Um, the reason why it, it, it works for us is because whenever we sell a loan, it, we're able to do two things. One, we're able to mitigate our risk because now once the loan is sold tomorrow, if there's any kind of market volatility, if the borrower defaults, it's no longer on our balance sheet, right? The loan is sold. It's no longer our issue. We're still the ones interfacing with the borrowers between the loan buyer, the loan holder and the borrower. We're still the ones that are kind of servicing the loans. But essentially, we're no longer holding the bag, right? The other beauty about having to sell these loans that enables us to compound our money. Usually, anytime we sell a loan, we usually capture about a 1% to 2% spread. Assuming that we're selling it, say, once a month, 12 times a year at a 2% spread on every single loan, we're capturing about a 24% return, which is great, not only for us, but for our investors as well. So it enables us to do two things. The reason why many of these but loan buyers are buying these loans is because they're institutionally backed, right? They love the assets that we're lending against, which is mostly residential. They're bullish on it versus retail or office. We're all bearish on that right now. Um, so they, they love the asset class and they also believe in the borrower, right? They want to make sure, like, like we said earlier, that the underwriting is done not only on the asset, which is important, but equally enough, the borrower is important as well. So that's why all these checks and balances all the T's are crossed, all the dot, all the I's are dotted because we want to make sure that in the event that we have to sell the loan to an institutional um, buyer, we have the ability to do so and they are going to be willing to buy it, right? So that enables us, like I said, to, to do two things, compound our money, but also mitigate any future risks. Absolutely. So I understand the rescue capital program is younger than the other lending programs that you do, but on the secondary market for the loans where you're selling the loans to others. Do you see a different appetite for fix and flip loans as opposed to the the rescue capital loans? What does that market look like when you sell the loans? Yeah. So most of what we sell today is the fix and flip loans. The rescue capital loans, we've seen some interest, you know, on them now. Uh we're actually negotiating with with an institution uh right now to be able to structure something where they're going to be able to buy these loans. But the loans that we're making on the rescue capital, we have with all intents and purposes, the intent of holding these loans on our balance sheet. And the only reason why is because look, those loans, they're at a higher coupon at a higher rate. And there's a reason why, because these loans already come at a with baggage. Um, so that enables us to obviously perform better for our investors. Uh, so that's that right now at this moment, we haven't sold any of those loans. We do hold those loans through another special purpose vehicle. You could say an SPV. But the intent is to eventually break into some kind of institution and try to develop those type of relationships to sell the web paper as well. Interesting. Yeah, it takes answering some questions about 
uh, how hairy a property is, you know, oh, yeah. what's your maximum hairiness on a deal basically with the rescue capital and everything. So, oh yeah. I mean, like it, it's, it's not some questions, it's a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. What made you comfortable with this loan? Why did you make this loan? And what were you thinking? Right. And I think the biggest risk mitigator, like I said earlier, is the fact that the, the, av- the average, you know, well, not the average, but the as is value. The leverage against the as-is value is our biggest risk mitigator. The borrower's experience is our biggest mis- risk mitigator. But also, essentially, the borrower's story. What happened? Why did you default? Why are you in default? Who are you buying out? What happened between you guys? You know, that type of explanation definitely helps the story as well. Nice. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we were able to dig into rescue capital and a few other lending topics today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Ruben, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> First one, what is your number one book recommendation? How to Make Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I, I can tell you, I, I say this every time on, on almost every podcast, that book changed my life. Um, literally shaped the way in which I think, the way in which I speak to people, how I think of people. Um, I read that book when I was a teenager, maybe about five times. I was a little bit of a troublemaker when I was a teenager, but you know, obviously that book definitely helped me change the, my ways, the way I see people and the way I speak to them. So I would definitely, definitely recommend that book for many people, especially in the, in the real estate industry. A lot of people, a little, sometimes a little arrogant and rude, um, for no reason at all. Uh, so I would definitely recommend reading that book for many people in the industry. I love it. Great recommendation. So question number one, now we go to number two, who or what inspires you? My father, um, you know, we lost him about two years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, both my mom and dad, we, when we came to America, my father had, you know, only $750 to his name. Um, you know, his rent at that time, I believe was $500 a month. So you could imagine first month's rent, you know, a good 70% of his, his liquidity went straight to that. Um, yeah, he, he was a very hard worker. So was my mother. You know, my mother was cleaning houses for many years. My father was a yellow cab driver. We're sleeping four hours a day, um, six days a week. So I, I can tell you, you know, thank God it, it, you know, they made the move to come to America. Thank God they made the decision to come here because, you know, with, with their, their labor, we're now eating the fruits of it. Uh, because now we're able to live in the best country there is. I love that. I think that perspective can help one rationalize a bad day like how could i possibly have a bad day considering you know my ancestors oh yeah oh yeah totally totally agree with you i mean look we lived in a one bedroom one bathroom apartment sometimes with 12 to 15 people in it so you know 
Um, it, it was, it was tough, you know, thank God I was, I was only a kid, so I didn't really understand how tough it was, but looking back now, I, I realized how the, the, the sacrifice that they made just for us to have a better life. So we can't take advantage of that. We have to live life to the fullest and make sure our kids are able to reap the benefits from what sacrifices they made as well. I love that. And we go to question number three, think about Ruben at 80 years old. What does 80 year old Ruben have to say? of Ruben of today. Have more kids. I hope my wife is listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> have more kids. I'm trying to convince my wife for one more. So um, have more kids. I think that's that's the key. I mean, look, we have three beautiful kids now, uh, almost eight-year-old, five-year-old, and a year-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, they, they are the best thing in the world. Um, coming home, no matter how tired you are, um, all is forgotten as soon as you see the, you know, the light in their face and, 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 and the twinkle in their eye. I mean, it's, it's so rewarding to know that everything you're doing is, is ultimately for them because you're not going to take anything with you. Right. So, um, you know, we, I come from a family of four, my parents, they both had, you know, six or seven siblings each, you know, anytime I have a family gathering, it's 30, 40 people at a, at a very minimum. Um, so, you know, that, that, that family aspect of, of, of things is so important. I just hope that my kids, uh, can, can, can have the same. So, um, 80 year old Ruben would probably say have more kids and, and don't waste time. I love it. <laughs> Ruben, thank you for joining us today. Where can our listeners learn more about you? They can visit us on our website, www.welandllc.com. We're also on all major social media platforms, TikTok included. Our, our handle is Weland LLC. Awesome. Thank you so much once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.